Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and the humanities, because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandi Schilanche, Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm here with Dr. Josh Mugel, a disaster and emergency medicine physician who has been working to build an emergency residency in Northeast Georgia. And I wanted to bring him on today to talk a little bit about the way crisis makes health disparities worse and also how it makes them more visible, uh, which is part of what we've been talking about in a series here on the podcast. So um, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do? Because I don't know that every one of our listeners is going to be familiar with what it means to be an emergency medicine physician. Sure. So um, the bulk of my job is to work as a doctor in an emergency department. Um, so especially in the U.S., um, you know, we take all comers uh, into the emergency department and we're the bulk of all acute care that happens. So we do get um, a lot of the, you know, the, the what we classically define as emergencies, the gunshot wounds and the car accidents and the, the strokes and the heart attacks. But, um, you know, the emergency department uh, really serves as a safety net for a lot of people um, in the U.S. as well. So people who have an acute illness, whether it's a, you know, a simple cold or pneumonia or they've run out of their blood pressure medicine or, or anything that kind of is an acute presentation of an illness, um, often it shows up to our department because they either don't have access to primary care or they can't uh, get into primary care in a, in a reasonable manner. Um, and, so, and so that's what emergency medicine is, and that's where I spend the bulk of my time. Um, I'm also in education, and, and one of my jobs is to, to create an educational environment for new emergency doctors. And so that's what I've been spending most of my time on recently. Well, and, and I know, too, in addition, that um, you have a fellowship in disaster medicine. And I think that's something that people probably haven't heard of before, and yet seems really critically important at the present time. So could you say a bit more of that, too? Yeah. And I mean, it, it's not a um, formal field uh, per se. So uh, there are people who are specifically trained to work within disasters, but there's a whole breadth of of what disaster medicine, disaster management are. And I think what most people envision disaster medicine is, is kind of the response phase of, of disasters and how when something bad happens, whether it's an earthquake or a pandemic or um, uh, a war, uh, you know, the special skills that are needed to take care of the patients and the victims of those disasters. But there's a whole lot of work in disaster medicine around uh, preparedness, around policy making, around interacting with hospitals and, and public health agencies to make sure that communities are prepared for disasters and um, are trained to know what to do when a disaster strikes and the same in a healthcare organization. How does our hospital know what to do when we get a large influx of very, very sick patients? So that's what I was, I was trained in um, and I've done a, a, quite a bit of work at various points of my career. Um, what it's kind of ended up being is, is when something, you know, big happens, such as the, the COVID pandemic, I, I try to put myself in a place where I can 
um, be of help with that. So, for example, this COVID pandemic, I, I they, when they were having um, need for volunteers in New York, I went to New York to volunteer at one of the hospitals in Harlem. Right. Actually, I do want to talk about that, but I want to go back a little bit earlier because I know that you also worked during the Ebola epidemic. And I was wondering if how you would compare those two experiences. It, it was interesting um, because I happened to be in um, Liberia, in Monrovia, uh, when the first patients from the northern part of the country that had been infected with Ebola started uh, making their way down to the city. So um, I hadn't been to Liberia for the sake of working with Ebola, but I happened to witness the um, kind of firsthand some of the how the hospital responded that I was working at, how the hospital responded, how the city responded. Um, and then I, I kept in touch with a number of my colleagues there as the epidemic really ravaged the city. Um, and then I was able to work a little bit with my hospital at the time in the in the U.S. and with the state uh, um, infection control that I was that I was in at the time to to prepare for that. And I think at the time um, a lot of the bad things that were happening with Ebola, um, I attributed to Liberia being an incredibly poor country and um, you know not having good healthcare infrastructure and not having a lot of trained healthcare workers and the toll that it took on the city and on the country I kind of attributed in a large part to the poverty and when it really didn't hit the U.S. very hard and we somewhat felt prepared for it I, I, I in my mind I think attributed it to the, the kind of lack of resources in that country versus ours but now that um COVID has essentially run rampant in our country. I see a lot of the same parallels, not necessarily in the disease itself, um, but really in uh, how miseducation has spurred um, the spread of, of the, the disease and how lack of resources has really affected the, the healthcare infrastructure um, and how we just weren't prepared for it and we weren't able to adequately respond to it for a number of reasons. And I see a lot of parallels, you know, kind of on a, a macro level to what happened to Liberia during the pandemic. That's really an interesting um take. And, and I'll say this because one of the things we've done lately is we've spoken to people like Alice Wong, who's a disability activist there. We've spoken to Dr. Oni Blackstock. And it's it's become very clear that some of the, we, we sort of rested our laurels, right, on the idea that, oh, well, we're a big first world nation and these things don't happen here. And now they have. I think we assumed that money um equal preparedness. You know, we are rich and that therefore, um, as a nation, we were prepared for this thing and, and clearly we weren't. Well, and I think the other thing that it has revealed is something we all know it's true that not everyone in the United States is rich. Um, in fact, it's a tiny percentage of people right. who are actually wealthy and then you kind of have a struggling middle class and then you have quite a, a large group of people who are just under middle class and then plenty of people under that. Um, below the poverty line. But we tend not to think about America that way. And that remains sort of hidden. And so one of the things that we discussed in a couple of our other podcasts was how this is rendering invisible problems visible. Suddenly it's like, oh, well, this problem isn't new. It's just newly visible. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, because I, I think the lack of preparedness 
um, was it, it's also to do with the way medicine is set up and, and is accessible or inaccessible in the United States, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think for most of the country, it, it has absolutely, you know, kind of laid bare some of the disparities that, that you know, were already there. So I don't, you know, COVID is killing uh, black people at 50% the, you know, higher rate than it is killing, you know, white people. And, and I think that's, shocking and horrifying, but, um, you know, black people have been dying, um, you know, have a higher maternal mortality and have a lower life expectancy generally, even before COVID hit. And I think, you know, sometimes I think we've, we've known this, those of us who, who kind of are on the front lines of healthcare, who work in the emergency department, um, who kind of see people who come into our emergency department um, who can't afford their medications or who have not sought care for what they knew was a horrible cancer because they knew that it would bankrupt them to seek care for that or, you know, any number of stories that, that, that all of us could tell. I think, I think a lot of us, you know, kind of were aware of this all along and now it is, it is just magnified. It's on a, on a much higher scale and it's, it's becoming apparent in, in the news. It's becoming apparent to the kind of the general um, you know, population as well. And, and, you know, it's not just poverty too. I mean, I think one of the things that's astounded me most about um, the COVID pandemic is how much anti-science rhetoric and how much willingness there is to believe misinformation. And, and I think that's the thing that surprised me as much as anything and, and as much as any disparities is how much, you know, misinformation is out there and just is exacerbating the situation. And I, we saw that in um, Liberia during Ebola too. And again, I kind of wrongly assumed that America wouldn't, um, you know, have that kind of issue that we, you know, we're scientifically literate people here. Uh, but clearly, I think that that has been another, you know, aspect that has just really devastated our country. I deal a lot with grief and death studies myself. And I, I was interviewed on NPR and in the New York Times when the crisis first hit here, having to deal with grief. And they were talking about how, oh, it's so difficult to grieve. And I said, you know, one of the things that I think we are grieving that isn't talked about is we're grieving a loss of an illusion. Um, a lot of people have this very comfortable illusion that is just not true. And I do think that sometimes in an attempt to preserve the illusion, you have people willing to believe all sorts of things that will keep that intact. Yeah. And I, I was actually talking to my wife about this um, recently, how I think so many of us have just, you know, talking about the grief over the, you know, the pandemic and our, our life has been disrupted as we know it and how, um, you know, devastating this has been to us and how much we suffer from this. Um, and realize that there are so many disparities out there. But that's almost a privilege to have that suffering there because so many people in so much of our country has been aware of this for such a long time. And it's a privilege to be exposed to it for the first time during a pandemic. You know, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a shock to be like, man, this, this is really um, a terrible situation we're in, whereas so many people in our country live in that terrible situation all the time anyway. Well, it, you know, for instance, someone saying, oh, you know, it's so, I can't believe that I've lost my 
freedoms to move freely right. where I want to and go where I want and do what I want. And people with disabilities and people who are very, yeah, are like, this is life, you know, where right. have you been? It's like, man, the, you know, the, the racial tensions in our country are astoundingly bad. And, you know, all of my black friends are like, hey, where have you been? You know, this is the life for you. This is the life exactly. And this is true. I mean, we have, despite uh, many strides which have been taken, and I don't want to downplay the fact that many good things have come. Um, we we are always on this precipice, this teetering edge of losing those rights. And so, LGBTQIA plus, uh, you know, individuals who are gender nonconforming, who are nonconforming in other ways, who are disabled, who are you know racial minorities or fiscal minorities or minorities, you know, all sorts of different aspects of this. Um, the rights that they enjoy, we're now seeing uh, in fear and panic, people want to take more rights away. Instead of going, oh, they don't have enough, we should expand access to medicine. It's more like, oh, well, let's take away even more from them. You know, and I think that that's, uh, for my listeners who are in the UK, some of this is simply, um, it's hard for them to get their head around, but it's also a cautionary tale. The way that medicine is structured in this country means that uh, my mother-in-law delayed treatment for colon cancer until it was almost too late because she was waiting to, you know, to scrape up enough money to pay her premiums for because her insurance isn't very good. She has insurance, but it's not very good. So even having it is not necessarily mean that you won't end up in all kinds of of trouble. And so um, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about this from a from the perspective of someone who sees many of these cases coming into emergency rooms, I imagine you're going to see more. Am I wrong? No, I, I think so. I mean, I think I, I think medicine is reflective of, of our society, you know, and it's I, I don't think we're immune from anything that any any of the disparities or any of the prejudices that society has. Um, you know, maybe we like to think we are that we're better educated or that we, you know, are have a have a more altruistic mentality. But I mean, the, the evidence is clear that we're not. We have the same racial disparities. Um, we have the same uh, gender disparities. Uh, you know, we, we just have all of this, the ills of society are, are evident in medicine. Um, you know, and, and, and I think as a lot of things change in our country and is, you know, a lot of the things that we fear are happening with, you know, like you said, some protected classes, you know, currently, if, if things get worse for them, I think that will be reflected in medicine. And, and, you know, they're talking about repealing the ACA and the, um, the Obamacare, the, 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 right, the, the Affordable, Affordable Care, Care Act uh, that, that essentially gave um, healthcare insurance to, to millions of Americans. And I think when I trained, I think the uninsured rate, there were about 60 million uninsured people, maybe 80, I can't remember the exact number. And that got cut dramatically. And I think um, people have started having a, a lot more access to care um, you know, since then. But if we go back to a time when people don't have insurance, um, that too will you know, predominantly affect the poor, the working class, the, um, you know, the, the minorities, um, and, and immigrants and, and, and whatnot. So I think, you know, we just have a horrible opportunity to see worse disparities coming down the road. Here. Right. And, you know, we've just been talking about how a crisis makes healthcare disparities evident, ones that already exist, but also has the opportunity to make them worse. Because as you point out, if emergency room is already um, at capacity, because there are a bunch of people sick with an epidemic, or, you know, some other crisis, 
then the people who've been going there because they don't have insurance are now going to be you know, at the bottom of the list. It's actually going to make things worse instead of better. And also because a lot of people lose their jobs as a result of a pandemic and therefore lose their insurance. And the people who are most dependent on, you know, on, on their jobs, the, the people, the hourly workers, the people who live paycheck to paycheck are going to be the ones that are forced to go back to, to work or forced to work maybe under dangerous conditions and more likely to contract the, the illness. But also, you're right. I mean, they're the ones who have to rely on the emergency department for, for their care. And so, you know, are we at capacity? Are they going to get more exposed if they come to the emergency department? Um, and I, I remember during the early parts of the pandemic, um, a lot of the messaging that hospitals was giving to the, the general public, my hospital included, was that if you don't need to really, really, you know, stay away from the emergency department so we can protect our capacity for, for um, you know, the COVID patients, um, and what, what ended up happening was people just delayed care. And so we were seeing delayed presentations of heart attacks and strokes. And again, those are also going to affect, um, uh, you know, poor people, minorities, people without insurance, immigrants, um, you know, so it's not just healthcare disparities in this one category. It's, you know, the healthcare disparities across the spectrum are going to be worsened as well. Right. And I think, um, you know, we'll be wrapping up here shortly, and I really appreciate you spending your time with us today. But I want to go back one more time to that point you made early on comparing uh, the way you approached, the way you understood the Ebola epidemic in Liberia versus the way that you're seeing COVID play out. And I think it goes back to that sense of privilege that you mentioned. We ourselves, practitioners of medicine, myself as the editor of a journal, we are also sitting in privileged positions, which allow us to make what turn out to be erroneous judgments, right? Where we think, oh, well, this is happening over there to them because of these reasons, not realizing that we've been blinded to this sort of gaps and negatives, you know, things happening in our own countries simply because it hasn't affected personally. Right. We're not humble enough to learn the lessons from, um, you know, more impoverished nations, I think, you know, and, and, and another example is um, I studied the earthquake response in Nepal um, after the big earthquake outside of Kathmandu. And they, they had phenomenal coordination between their hospitals and the hospitals and the government system. And I mean, I mean, it was this remarkable um, coordinated effort to to care for all the patients of that. And I don't think you know, I haven't seen a lot of, you know, American or, or Western experts going to Nepal <laughs> to study, you know, how they did their response right. and learning from that. And, you no, know. no. As a matter of fact, you know, almost a sense, I, I read an article the other day saying, um, why aren't people talking about how well African countries yeah. are handling COVID? They're doing a wonderful job, but no one's talking about it because, because of all sorts of prejudice. Just looking at the country by country chart of patient numbers of COVID uh, before this call and India is doing a remarkable example. And, you know, they've, they've got, you know, billion people and, and worse poverty than we do. And why aren't we going to India and asking to, you know, study how they've done this? So, yeah, I agree. I think right. there's, there's definitely a blind spot. Um, a little, little bit of, and it's a big one. Yeah. It's a, it, you know, they, they, <laughs> I hate to say it, but the whole white man's burden idea is still alive and well, even though it should have died a horrible yeah. death a long time ago. Um, there's still a sense in which white and Western things are privileged over other nations and cultures who, as you point out, we could be asking them, hey, how did you handle this? Hey, how better might we serve our communities, our public? Um, and the fact that we don't is, I, I assume, partly why uh, why we have to have these conversations and also why you're working to 
um, to develop this disaster medicine ideas while you're working to develop um, your own studies and your residency for emergency medicine. So, you know, it's the future generations that we're hoping will do better than what we've done. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think that is the the point of education. And I think we owe it to ourselves to get um, better representation in how we educate our, our future generations, but also just being able to focus on these concepts. I mean, I was never taught about uh, racial disparities or, or really any significant healthcare disparities when I was in medical school or during residency. And so I think we have to realize that this is, you know, this is our country's greatest sin, but it's also healthcare's greatest sin right now is that we we have not addressed this in a meaningful way. And, and we have to make this part of, you know, how we how we teach going forward in the future and starting from a, a position of humility i think um is is so deeply important and something that medicine is not always very good at and and i think also something america is not always very good at you're not very good at that either doctors are no. not good at saying hey we've done this really really poorly yeah and it's important to admit that there are problems are often the very first steps towards trying to find solutions so thank you again for coming on josh i really appreciate it again this is dr josh mugel and there will be a transcript of our talk today you should be able to reach it from our blog post that will attend this podcast and once again thank you all for being part of the conversation thank you brandy i appreciate it Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ. Bye.